Praise God. Uh, what a joy to be with you this morning. I know preachers who visit say that stuff, but I mean it. That was wonderful. Great to worship with you. We did that. Obviously, there's been a nine o'clock one. That went well. A couple of tweaks of the talk. And now, coming here and worshiping with you again, and it's beautiful. Amy, you're good. Just saying, you're like anointed, so praise God. Um, so, before I get going into like the talk bit, um, it is a joy to be here and to actually come and spend a Sunday, because I spend a lot of the rest of the time working with different ones of you in different contexts, but it's a joy to work with Ben and Emily and to count them as friends. It's a joy to walk with Rick and Lindsay and Rosie and others. You, you are generous in this city. You don't, maybe you don't know it, but you actually are. Your, you, your hearts, your openness, your commitment to the rest of us is like admirable. So uh, I say that knowing that uh, who cares who I am, you know, I'm a visitor, but the truth is that we, I've got plenty of evidence for it because of helping to lead city prayer and then helping to, with the 100 Homes campaign, Fostering Sunday coming up on May the 12th. If you've never considered fostering, then there's an opportunity for you to do so. Uh, God's doing something in our city, and it's a joy to work together with you. You've made lots of things possible, even if you're not sure about it yourself. You might not know it happens, but rooms and availability and heart and generosity. Love these guys. It's like they're actually our friends, and we enjoy that. I think it's, you know, when God joins people, it's different to being a visiting speaker. It's different to go into some place to do a talk. Um, and that's, our, that's my family. My, my, my family is, uh, I've grown up, and Helen and I have grown up in the salt and light world. I lead a sphere of churches uh, as part of one of our six spheres in the, in the UK. And that's how we build. We build relationally. We build with adventure, and we build around mission. But we, we've got some history between us. So you guys are the closest to us guys in this city, I think. And uh, so can you lend us a tenner? <laughs> oh, no, it's just a, just a thought. It's just, just a, I'll just leave that with you. It's all that money talk, Rosie said. So, uh, um, A lonely woman bought a parrot from a pet shop. Stick with me, okay? It's all right to laugh in church. So she wanted companionship, but she was a bit lonely, so she wanted someone to talk to. The next day, she took it back to the pet shop and said, look, the parrot won't talk. Manager said, does he have a mirror in his cage? Because like parrots love mirrors. So she bought a mirror and went back. And next day she comes back again and said, look, that bird's still not talking mirror or not. He said, how about a ladder? A ladder would be good. And parrots love ladders. And when he's happy, he'll talk. So she bought a ladder. The next day back again saying, parrots still not talking mirror. No, doesn't matter. Ladder, irrelevant. He said, look, I've been saving the best to last. How about a swing? He'll be happy when he has a swing. He'll talk. He won't be able to shut up. So she reluctantly purchased a swing. Sure enough, the next day she was back, but this time she had a sad face. The parrot died, she said. Oh, did you feel that? I saw that. I saw that compassion. Compassion over there. None over here. Lots over there. The parrot died. She said, oh, I'm sorry. The manager said, look, Please tell me, did he ever say anything before he died? The woman replied, yes, he did. He said, don't they sell any food at that pet shop? <laughs> Got a mirror, no food. <laughs> Sometimes we miss the very obvious. 
We're about to read a story which has been dissected and examined and exegeted and hermeneuticed to death. I missed the main point. So look, let's read this together. It's going to come up on your screen up there. And we're going to read Mark chapter 5, 23. I don't want you to miss the main point. If you do, I'm going to tell you anyway, because that's the basis of my talk. Okay, so let's go. Um, Mark chapter 5, 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Note, a large crowd gathers round him by the lake. Just to state the obvious. Uh, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. Isn't it interesting how quick they go from commoting and wailing to laughing? What did that tell you? It's not deeply felt, is it, the whole wailing commotion bit? It's paid for, professional mourners. After he put them all out, he took the... I wonder how he did that too. How did he put them all out? I say, would you mind? No time to go. He's a, he's a builder stroke carpenter, I think. Probably he had a bit of presence. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. How long had the woman had the issue of blood? Oh, interesting. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give us something to eat. Don't you just love Jesus? I mean, in a big way, of course we love him because he saved us from our sins. But I just love Jesus because he knows what to do when you've raised somebody from the dead. I mean, like, little tip for you, next time you do it, make sure they have a snack straight afterwards. Because Jesus needs somebody to, he just said, just give him a snack, give, give us something to eat. You don't know what death's taken out of it. 
Um, the most obvious thing about this story is that there is supernatural acts of God taking place. That a kid that was sick and dead is alive, and a woman who'd been sick and dead for 12 years is now fully healed. Against all the odds. What, what caused that to happen? What was that that kind of took place that made people like, just amazed at what they were seeing? You see, it's interesting to us because we're in the West, and our Western kind of enlightenment rationalism, our secular humanism, and our mindset has ruled out, I'm not saying it's ruled out in here, but I'm saying it's still hard for us, it's ruled out the supernatural as a possibility. Why should we accept that as true, do you think, as kingdom people? Well, we shouldn't. It's an argument based on some people's experience rather than based on scripture. Miracles in, this, in that kind of Western Enlightenment thing are seen as a violation of God's laws, decrees. Describe, they describe God as an absent watchmaker. He wound the universe up and then let it go and disappeared. This was to, to such a degree, particularly in the 19th century, Thomas Jefferson, who was a, an American president, decided that he'd have a cut-and-paste Bible where he cut out all of the supernatural instances occurring in the Bible. So he thought, I'll just have a Bible without all that stuff because it's all a bit of nonsense. So he took out it pretty thin. Anyway, you can see it in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington as a testimony to Western Enlightenment. We don't need the supernatural. We've got science. We've got thought. We've got ways of thinking. Except the problem with that is if you hold that rationalist viewpoint, and I'm not going after being rational. I think being rational is quite handy as opposed to being irrational. So being rational is quite good. But what I'm saying is if you hold that perspective that the, that the supernatural is rare, it's hardly counting, it doesn't matter, and it's really against the laws of God, then you're going to have a problem with reading the Gospel of Mark, <laughs> and any of the other Gospels for that matter. The Gospel of Mark is known as the Gospel of Miracles. Uh, depending on how, many, how you count, there are between 16 and 20 miraculous acts of God worked in the Gospel of Mark. One theologian described and said, look, that he's only put them in there to, uh, as a, a counterpoint to believing in miracles. What? Did Mark really tell 20 miracle stories to warn against belief in miracles? Theologians like get jobs on that type of thesis. It's a load of nonsense. Crazy. So miracles are, there are lots of things. There's three particular words for them. There's the signs, there's wonders, there's power. There's different Greek words for them. Semion, dunamis, teras. But Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They're the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural. Demonized and wounded. When Jesus acts like he does in the story we've just read, we're seeing normality. We're seeing kingdom come. We're seeing life breaking out. We're seeing life the way it's supposed to be. Amen? So... What you've got in this particular story is, and in other stories in Mark, is you've got Jesus performing signs and wonders and acts of power by the Holy Spirit in response often to the faith of the sufferer. 
Faith here is the practical trust that Jesus can do something. He can actually do something with something that looks like it can't be done anything with. Like death. Like beyond the doctors. So it's possible because Jesus says, look, if you've got the faith, I've got the authority. Danger signal, alarm bells if you've, got, if you've been around a while. You're going, so all the healings then depend on my faith. Actually, they don't depend on your faith. They depend on Jesus. <laughs> but if you're in unbelief, it's difficult to believe that God will do it. So you get what you want. You're trapped in a world of denial and unbelief and ex- explanation which says, no, no, it won't, it won't happen for me. It might happen for others. But it will. Have you ever been in a meeting like that where it seems to be happening for everybody else but not for you? Have you ever been in a camp like that or a weekend conference or a whatever it might be? Or you've heard stories from some other parts of the world where it all looks like it's all happening there but it's not happening where you are. Guys, the same Bible, same Jesus, same desire because we've got in this story, we've got people who are prepared to press through the struggle. In Mark, it's hard. Let me just tell you straight up. In the Gospel of Mark, it's hard to get healed. It's much easier in Matthew. Just saying. In Mark, you've got to like, you've got to, you've got to break through crowds and stuff. In Mark, like remember the guys who had the paralytic on the bed. They can't get in the front door. I mean, what a story this is. It's replete with humor. It, it, like, they pick, I don't even know if he wanted to go. They pick him up. Like, we're going, where are we going? I, oh, just shut up, we're going. So on we go, we carry the guy, we can't get in the front door, so what will we do? Some bloke is probably, you know, he loves his mate and whatever. Oh, let's go through the roof. Yeah, up to the roof, dragging through the roof. And there's a hole in the roof. But how big is that hole? It's it's always bothered me. I mean, is it like, way, little wheelbarrow of a person flying down? Is that what it is? Was it big enough to lower him gently? I don't think so. I think these boys like probably just, ah, he's paralyzed. I just chuck him. I'm sorry. I'm just saying. I don't know. I'm not speculating, little. So they drop the guy in, and it's, you've got to get through the roof to get to Jesus. Mind you, when Jesus has wiped the dirt from his eyes, he's going, oh, well done, boys. <laughs> Syrophoenician woman. She wants a daughter, I think it's a daughter or son, I can't remember, healed. And under, Jesus says, well, look, I haven't come for people like you yet. He said, but you know what? People like me, you can still eat the crumbs from the table of the people who are eating proper food. And he says, on the basis of that... Your daughter's free. Your son's free. Deaf and dumb boy. Disciples picking up the whole Jesus kingdom message start to have a go at casting out a demon while Jesus is occupied elsewhere. No good whatsoever. It's hard work. It's hard work for the disciples. It's hard work for the dad watching his son not getting delivered until Jesus comes and delivers them. It's a graft. It's... It demands perseverance, and that's never better 
illustrated than in this particular story. Jairus, think about this for a moment. There's a lot of parallels, but there's also a lot of differences. Let's talk about the differences for a moment. Jairus is a man of stature in the community. A synagogue ruler has respect, carries respect, has got some influence in the community. It's a responsible role. He's probably uh, not badly off. Some means behind him. The woman is not even named. She's isolated, living on the edge of town because she's skint, so she won't be living in the best places in town, will she? All her money's gone. And she's also unclean, according to the law, which means that anybody who touches her or she brushes against is impure and will not be able to go to worship for seven whole days. It's communicable. So what's that going to do for you? It probably means you don't go out when everyone else goes out because you're fed up with people just recoiling from you because they want to go to the meeting on the weekend. I just interpolated that. I, they didn't say that in the Bible. But all of a sudden, you are faced with a real contrast of people's backgrounds but in an amazing confluence, they are brought together in a, because of need. You know, desperate people do find a powerful God. But, but we have to go through an awful lot of humbling before we get that desperate, don't we? More often than not, we just think if we could just go through the proper channels, we'd be all right. How desperate are you, really, for a powerful God? We're pretty desperate right now. My wife, Helen, here has an unhelpful and not very kind diagnosis. And it's real. We need a powerful God. And we need him soon. But, but, a powerful God walks through Palestine, setting people free, left, right, and center. And he presses through, he, he, he allows people to press through their challenges and difficulties because he wants to communicate, Mark wants to communicate, that it's okay to struggle. And it's okay to struggle and remain in faith and struggle at the same time. What was that woman thinking? In her little home somewhere, on the edge of town, weak, emaciated, feeling like, you know what? I'm going to go for it. When that guy comes to town again, I'm going to get out of my seat. I'm going to get out of my isolation. I'm going to get out of my rejection, an official rejection, by the way. I'm going I'm to I'm get out of that, and I'm going to go right into the middle of everybody's gaze and see if I can just touch his cloak. Because if I touch him, I'll be all right. Wow. What about that for faith? But Jairus is the first one up. He's the first. Jesus kind of arrives. He's on the lakeside, and he's got a big crowd. What would Jesus do to a big crowd? He'd teach them. He's about to, I think he's about to teach them when he gets interrupted by a really well-known synagogue leader who flings himself at his feet and humbles himself. Why? Because his girl's dying. 
I think she's probably been sick for a while. Where was Jairus then? Maybe it took the reality of the situation for him to say, I'm going to risk my reputation. I'm going to risk it all on the basis of my daughter's need. I don't care about my position. I don't care what people think. I don't care if my clothes get dirty. And I don't care if he's new and unorthodox. And we don't quite know what he's about. But this guy's got power. So I'm going to put myself in that position because that's worth it to me. And, I, and at this point, I'll do anything. Let me tell you, if Jesus was walking down the road right now, and he was just outside, just on his way up that little hill across the road, I'd be running after him right this second. I'll tell you that. So imagine the joy when Jesus says, okay, let's go. Just as Jesus went with him. As he's going to Jairus' house, I bet Jairus' shaky belief is now beginning, he's beginning to get some strength in his boots. Except that some woman who's unclean interrupts the interruption. Right, can I just have like 12 blokes up here, please? Just, just for a moment. Amy, this is your show. You're on next, okay? <laughs> just 12 blokes. I want a mini crowd. What a rubbish crowd. You look like a choir. <laughs> just like, just come over here. Thanks, guys. Just come and stand around me, behind me, and it's next to me. And, all right. Come, <laughs> come my wallet. <laughs> uh, a little bit tighter. Like, ease into your roles, boys. Come on. <laughs> okay, so we're a crowd, and we're going somewhere. Okay, we're going to Jairus' house. When, and we start walking. Let's just walk. When all of a sudden, Amy decides that what she'd like to do is touch my clothes. This woman reaches in and touches the hem of his garment. So Jesus says, with his mates all around him, he, he stops everybody and says, what? Can you see how stupid a question that might appear? <laughs> To, and that's why the disciples say, what do you mean, who touched your clothes? So then they stop and they spread out. And then just over there, Amy's sneaking back home, <laughs> fully healed, when she realizes, actually, it was, it, was, it was me, she says. Look at the crowd. Where are they looking? They know her. I think they're still stepping back because they don't want to miss synagogue next Saturday. But now, instead of her communica communicating uncleanness to Jesus, Jesus communicates life and cleansing and healing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Great. Give them a round of applause. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so what, what faith challenges do you are presenting themselves to you right now? What's in your life? What is it that's, that's going on? Because, listen, if nothing's going on, you might want to check your pulse. Why? Because faith's not static. It's always moving. You're always moving into faith. It's always going somewhere. It's 
on its way to becoming greater and bigger. It has to be exercised to remain strong. So if you are not in a faith challenge right now, you want to be asking yourself, what's going on? Because you just might have slipped into being apathetic. Jairus and his daughter are surprisingly restored at the end. Mark often does this. It's called a sandwich structure. He says, look, here's Jairus' story. Here's the woman's story. Here's Jairus' story. And you're meant to read the two stories at one. Go through Mark. You'll see it all the way through. It's one message here. The message is, persevere in your faith. Don't give up. (laughs) And be open to interruptions. How about that in your busy life? God spoke to me about this not too long ago. I think it was last summer, the summer before. And it was about creating margins in my life so he could fill them with his kingdom and activity. So I, I went 15 minutes early to a meeting that I had at Beast and Costa, that well-known spiritual house. And as I went there, I, I was 15 minutes, the sun was shining, there was a busker just down the road playing Eva Cassidy, who I really liked, and it was hot, and I was in shorts, and I had my sunglasses on, and I just said to the Lord, oh, Lord, um, I'm available to do whatever you want, uh, but not that available, because it's really nice right now. And the sun shining on my face. So as I kind of open my eyes again, I notice a woman coming towards me with purpose. This is a walking with no purpose. This is walking with purpose. <laughs> it was the latter. And she started to walk towards me. And before she got close to me, she started to shout things like, Are you happy? Are you happy with what you've done? I'm thinking to myself, an existential question outside Beast and Costa (laughs) on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm not ready for it. I mean, if you're asking me how happy I am, I mean, I've had a few regrets, but (laughs) mostly I'm pretty content. But So she says, are you content with what you've done? Are you satisfied? She's getting closer, and she's pointing. I'm thinking, this is coming for me. She's really, and then she gets close, and I said, she got real close, finger in, like, and she goes, do you know what you've done? I said, look, have we, have we met? She says, met, you were married to me for 22 years, and you walked out last year, and left us in a mess, and I went, I didn't, (laughs) that wasn't me, I, I didn't do that. And she, got, she says, what do you mean? Don't be stupid. Take those glasses. I took the glasses off, and her face went from to, oh, gosh. Wrong bloke. Nottingham Post, pasta in bigamy. So I said, you sound like, she said, I'm so sorry. I said, you sound like you're in a lot of pain. Can I pray for you? Can I, what's your name? It's got a name. Prayed for her. And off she went. I look out for her all the time. 
Not passionately, more out of fear, to be quite honest. This, just in case she forgets, and I never wear glasses. So, guys, like in that moment, in those moments, are you, are you available? You don't have to be perfect, and you don't have to be super skilled. More often than not, you just have to be available. A friend of mine said, I heard them talking the other day, and I said, so how are you maintaining your walk with Jesus? He says, I walk slowly between rooms at work. Meaning, my quiet time isn't enough. I commune with him all day. Ah. She's available all the time. She's open to the whisper of God. She's ready for what he says. This woman overcame rejection, she overcame fear, she overcame being an outcast. The Jairus overcame pride, his, his reputation counted as nothing because he had a desperate need to find a powerful God and the woman who he then calls daughter. She's gone from being an outcast put there by the law and now is brought back right into the center and says, you're my daughter, you're family to me. From the outskirts, right into the center of Jesus' heart and gaze. There are people that we walk past every day who are sons and daughters of the living God, who he wants us to pay attention to. And, and he wants them to know you're his family and ambassador and representative in Nottingham doing what you do day in, day out. So that if they encounter you, they encounter him. Because you are presence carriers of the kingdom of God. And where you go, authority goes. And where you go, power goes. And where you go, signs go. And where you go, wonders go. And if you don't go knowing that, they don't go. But I don't know what to say. Well, I didn't. Except to deny that I was a bigamist. Which I felt was reasonable. But God opens the doors no matter what. Guys, unbelief is an enemy of ours. It can happen. You can look at me. Well, that bloke on the stage, like, wow, what a mighty man of God he is. Because he just did that, because he's got a good story and a big mouth. Well, that, that's one thing. What matters most is that you live it where you are. It's not just one person. It can't be that, can it? It's got to be the body of Christ living into the power of God what, uh, and living into what's already true of us. So our unbelief needs repenting of. And our fear needs courage as an antidote. We need boldness as to... As we approach the throne of grace, we need boldness. We'll find mercy and help in our time of need. But boldly, we approach life so that when we get up in the morning, we're saying, stink. Today, anything is possible. Anything's possible wherever I happen to be. Jesus isn't too busy to be interrupted. Twice. He stops he, he, he says no to the teaching opportunity to preach to many 
in order to follow the one's need. And then interrupt that to do something else. If I was, I'd have been mad if I was Jairus. Anyway, it all, but her faith stronger than his. When, when she gets healed, she's like, I expected it. He thinks she's dead. Nobody gets back from the dead. Except Jesus says, let's go. Don't be afraid. No matter how far you are down a line right now, don't be afraid. Don't give in. Hold fast. He's good. The, the grave couldn't hold him. He's broken the back of sin and death. And you are the living testimony of what it means to live in the goodness of that. And the world needs to see it. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.